Okay, well, let's stand and read the, the Gospel of John, chapter 11, 45, we'll start that. Therefore many of the Jews who had come to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council, or saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and, and the Romans will come and take both away our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people, and that the whole nation not perish. Now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away, in there to, away from there to the country near the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the, the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew that where he was, he was to be reported so that they might see them. Pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it encourages every single week and also convicts us when we need to be convicted and strengthens us to be able to walk out of here to... Um, to love you more and to spread your word more. We pray now, wherever the hearts of our people are today, that you, know, you teach them and teach me, and that we are open to anything that you might have to say to us. And we look forward to diving in now. In Christ's name, amen. I have to tell you something that happened in our study on Tuesday night at the men's group. Uh, Pat Jeanson asked if I could reiterate something I had talked about last week, um, the passage in verse 30, or the verse 35 says that Jesus wept. And I mentioned that when he was deeply moved and troubled, that had nothing to do with him being troubled or deeply moved by the, um, the emotions of the, of the girls or the Jews there that day in terms of like, sympathy towards what they were going through. The deeply moved and being troubled was in relationship to their unbelief. And he was troubled by the fact that here's God in their midst and they wouldn't... Uh, they, they just didn't see it, and uh, Pat said, um, he said, uh, man, you just threw, up, threw my world upside down, because he said, the only verse in the Bible I had by memory, I know, <laughs> he goes, I know, I know now is wrong. <laughs> so that's pretty good. But I do have a substantiation for you that I never mentioned in the sermon that might help you understand that it's over the issue of unbelief, uh, their unbelief, and not so much um, anything else. Uh, this, you may not know this, but when I say it, it'll come to memory. Jairus' daughter was, died. And at one point in his ministry, Jesus went up and uh, came to Jairus' house and healed the daughter. So, um, the reason I say that is when you look chronologically through the Bible reading, you'll see that Jairus' daughter was raised prior to Lazarus. So the fact that Jesus raised Lazarus to, the, to, to life is not the first time Jesus has already risen someone from the dead. So remember Martha and Mary are close to Jesus, the disciples are close to Jesus, 
Um, this would have got this got all over town what Jesus did, and yet these Jews, Martha and Mary, are still asking questions like, you know, if you had been here sooner, my brother would not have died. So I think, and if you think about that as well as a, as a substantiation, besides the context of the verses, yeah, we can see that there's a there's a, a possibility here. Well, it actually suggests that this is exactly why Jesus is weeping. It's over their unbelief and unwillingness to understand what he's capable of in terms of his power. Secondly, when Jesus wept over Jerusalem later on, the night before he was killed, what was his tears over? He says, oh, I wish that I was able to gather you like uh, under my wings like a hen gathers her chicks. He's crying over their unbelief at the rejection of him that day. So every time Jesus weeps in the scriptures that I can think of, as I speak right now, um, it's always over unbelief and the people's unwillingness and understanding to see who he is. So just hold on to that thought too, because some people were deeply moved and troubled by the fact that deeply moved and troubled was a different definition than they're expecting. And uh, just hold on to that thought though, as um, you move on, if you ever have to teach somebody or you hear someone teaching about why Jesus was crying, I want you to have the right idea. My job is to give you clarity in what the passages are saying. So. All right, well, let's dive in. And I want to start off by asking a question. Um, do you have anybody in your life right now that you wish that knew Jesus Christ the way you did? Anybody that you would want them to come to salvation? And I wonder if in your prayer life for these people, you've ever prayed something like this, like, God, I just, I know, like, you know, I see evidence of you in the creation, and I see evidence of you and when I read the scriptures, but so many people around me, God, just don't see you in creation and don't see you through the scriptures. Could you do something big and supernatural for them so they just get it and they know you're real? Just reveal themselves in a way that's undeniably that, you're, that you exist. Or even in your own prayer life, how many times um, have you done something like this with God? You know, Lord, I'm struggling right now. I'm doubting you. I have lots of questions that I feel are unanswered, and logically life doesn't make sense through your eyes, or through the eyes that I see with you with right now. If only, God, you would just do something in a big way to reach out to touch my life so I know you're real. <laughs> and what's the reason we want this for people and for ourselves? Because we believe that if we receive that tangible experience, that it's absolute proof that God exists, and it will leave no room for doubts in our life, It'll, leave, it'll produce absolute surrender, and it just alleviates all our problems and our, and our lack of faith. Well, it's interesting, as we finished last week's sermon, and as we finish, or when we look at it today again, that the greatest miracle Jesus ever performed in his three-year ministry was the raising of Lazarus from the, dead, from the dead. And guess what it produced? Division. Yes, it's true from 445 that many people believed in him, the truth is that the act of raising Lazarus from the dead was the catalyst that propelled Jesus to the cross. That was the final miracle that basically put all the leaders and a lot of the Jewish people against him to propelling him to death and going to, the to be crucified. So I want to look today at the different reactions to the resurrection of Lazarus. And there's three groups in particular, uh, the believing Jews, um, the unbelieving Jews, and then the religious authorities. So let's jump in to verse 45. We'll look at the believing Jews who witnessed the resurrection. It says, There are therefore many of the Jews who come to Mary, who had come to Mary and saw what he had done, believed in him. So verse 45 reveals two things to us. One, what the Jews believed and how they came to believe it. So what did they come to believe? Well, in verse 45 it says, Many of the Jews 
after seeing what he had done, came to believe in him. This is not a belief in a higher power, as our culture would say. Uh, it's not a belief in the, in the universe, that the universe somehow has power to control and dictate our, our present and past and future. Uh, this is a belief placed in the Lord Jesus. So in other words, their entire spiritual worldview found itself in the identity of Christ. As a Jew, it's extremely significant. You should, you'll remember these things as I say them to you. But it's extremely significant to understand that their belief was in Him and put their identity in Him. See, their understanding was the same at the very minimum as Martha in 27. She said there, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even who comes into the world. So, they, so in other words, these people believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the King of Israel. They believed that his origin now was heavenly, not just from Mary and Joseph as parents. They believed he was God's agent. And he, he came into the world to be Israel's redeemer and deliverer. In other words, for the nation of Israel. So at the very least, it was that. But now because of the resurrection, it was more than that. Because he, they saw him as the author of life, he, they understood that he had the present ability to resurrect. That it was in him that eternal life could be given. And that life when death was in the power of his hands. So they, they moved to understanding him in, in a divine way as God's agent. That's a significant thing to understand as a Jew, because in that context, to believe Jesus was the Christ came with persecution. Remember the blind man? He says, anyone who confessed Jesus as the Christ in Jerusalem was to be kicked out of the synagogue. And again, um, that, it may not seem much to us, but in the, in the life of a synagogue, that was the whole Jewish culture, the whole Jewish identity. I mean, um, it's not like, you know, if you got kicked out of Genesis' house, it would hurt, but it wouldn't end your life. Like, you'd be able to go to another church and whatnot. In Jerusalem, if you got kicked out of a synagogue, you didn't go to another synagogue. Like, you were excommunicated from all religious life and community life. So to confess Jesus as the Christ is a major step in these people's lives. Um, and I just want you to see the significance of that. But I don't want you to miss the significance also for us, because it says here that they believed in him. Um, their, their faith is placed in Jesus, and that's the same place that we have to place our faith as well. And again, in Genesis House, that teaching is not new for us. We've heard over and over that we come to God the Father through Jesus Christ, and that we place our faith in Him. But again, if you walk out into this Okotoks culture, there's 30,000 people here, let's say there's 10,000 adults, you try telling 10,000 adults in Okotoks that the only way for eternal life and that you have to place your faith in Him and His identity is the only way to get to heaven and the only way to get right with God, how do you think it's going to go for you? I know how it's gone for me. No one in my public evangelism has ever believed me. <coughs> right? Over time, it could maybe through you know, one-on-one relationships and stuff, there's been convincing, but just in terms of pure like messages, just like dialogue, no one's ever believed me. Again, so again, to, to, for us to come to a place where we believe that our faith is in Him is a significant step. And we have to embrace Him as the means to eternal life. So how do they come to believe? It says there, when they saw what He had done. When they saw what He had done. You know, for two and a half years, Jesus had been making radical claims that He was Christ and that He was God. Using these signs and these miracles was were just pointers to authenticate his claims. 
So when the, G- the Jews witnessed Jesus resurrect Lazarus from the dead, they acknowledged for the first time that what Jesus had been saying about himself was actually true. And what they saw, and, then, and what they heard when he commanded Lazarus out of, the, out of the grave, led them to faith. And I like the way John MacArthur actually summarizes this, because this is the process for us as well. Now listen to his words carefully. He says, they not only saw it with their eyes, but also contemplated it with their minds, noticed, noted its significance, and drew only the right conclusion from it. And I've got more to say about that when we get to our lessons. But as an outsider looking in, you would think that all the people there present that day would have surrendered their lives to Christ and put their faith in Him, based on the evidence they had just witnessed. But 46 tells us that's not true. There's a second group of people that witnessed the events, but were, and I call these the unbelieving Jews who witnessed the resurrection. It says, some of them went out to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. So like the believing Jews, they also witnessed the miracle. Like they saw it. Like that's why it says there, when they, when they um, saw what he had done, they went and told the Pharisees. Um, their, just res- their response, though, was just rejection to what they saw. They wouldn't embrace his identity. So instead of embracing him, they tattled on him. And they didn't, again, deny that the miracles hadn't been done. They didn't have any doubts that they were that they'd been done. They just flat out um, didn't take the implications for themselves and surrender their lives to Christ. So they'd seen, the, they'd seen Lazarus dead. They'd seen the stone rolled away. They'd seen him walk out of the tomb. They'd seen him um, in his grave clothes. Perhaps they helped unravel his grave clothes. I mean, who knows? Uh, they, but they saw no signs of decomposition, no signs of decay, but they wouldn't believe. It is noteworthy that they came to the Pharisees, though. And I would suggest that this action was not an attempt to win them over or try to convince them that Jesus was who he says he was. I would suggest it was an act of hostility. It was an act of hostility, and it's based on who the Pharisees were. Now, they were experts in the Law of Moses, so they knew the five books of the Bible uh, really well, the first five books. They were teachers and leaders in the synagogues. Uh, they were, uh, f- had frequent contact with the, commoner, the common people of the society, of Israel's nation, or I guess in the Jerusalem area. Um, they had major influence, and they were widely known as well for their hatred of Jesus. I mean, they, they tried to stone him on, on a few occasions. So it wasn't a surprise to anyone that Jesus was not their favorite. And like I said earlier, they already told anyone who confessed him as Christ to be kicked out of the synagogue, and that's where they were teachers. So again, their move to go to them was not an act of, of genuine um, interest. But they were basically like the, the rich man. These people were like the rich man that, and the Lazarus parable, or I don't, actually it's probably even a true story, because it doesn't even say it's a parable, that's debatable, but the rich man and Lazarus is spoken of, of uh, in Luke chapter 16. And these are the kind of people they were. This is the story of them, though, that there's a rich man, and then there's Lazarus. And not Lazarus in this story, it's a different Lazarus, just so you don't get confused. The rich man and Lazarus are, are, uh, are in the same home. The rich man has everything he wants, and the poor man is underneath them, eating the scraps of his table. They both die. And they both, one goes to heaven, Lazarus goes to heaven, and, and um, the rich man goes to Sheol, which is like a holding tank for hell, waiting for judgment. And um, the rich man can see Lazarus at, at Abraham's side. 
which is a depiction of being in God's presence. So the rich man says to, to, uh, to Abraham, or basically the God, the Father, um, can you send Lazarus over here to, to, to help ease the pain that I'm in because I'm in agony? And, and, uh, and uh, Abraham says, no, I can't do that. So then the rich man says, well, can you send them to, at least to my brothers and tell them that to please repent and give their lives to God because uh, it's terrible here? And then and they, and the, the, our Abraham says, can't do that either. And he says, they've got the prophets and, and Moses. They've got the, basically, they have the Bible. They can read the Bible and figure out for themselves how to get right with God. And then the rich man says, actually, that's not a good idea. I got a better idea. He says, um, if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. And then Abraham says, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. So even a miracle of, of, of resurrection isn't going to change these guys' hearts, attitudes, and minds toward Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what these guys are like in verse 46. They witnessed the miracle, they got the prophets, they got the scriptures, but they're just unwilling to come to know who he is and surrender their lives to him, despite all the evidence. Well, sadly, these Jews then are in the same camp as this rich man and his family, but it turns out they're not the only ones. Uh, we find a third group who are even worse off than these guys, and that's the religious leaders of Israel. And after they had heard about the things that Jesus had done in Bethany, they decided to... Uh, take action against Jesus as well. And we'll look at that in verse 47. It says, Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If uh, you're not familiar with this, the council in, in Jerusalem is the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin had 70 members, uh, included the high priest and the chief priests that were under him. And they were ultimately subject to Roman rule, but were still, within Israel's context, the leading chief governing authorities in Israel. So they handled the religious affairs of Israel, the civil affairs and judicial affairs of Israel. And what they said was a go. So they were the head cheese, basically. Um, so they went to these guys in the first place because the Pharisees in themselves didn't have the authority to take action against Jesus. They didn't have the power and authority within Israel to take action, so they had to get the leading authorities, which is the Sanhedrin, involved so that they could take judicial action against them. So they called in the religious leaders, the religious elite, to call the shots. Um, and this move is extremely important because um, those of you who are familiar with this, uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees uh, never had um, any, uh, they had a lot of conflict between them. They didn't have a good working relationship. They had bad blood. So it's significant that they conjoined together to get rid of Jesus, considering they didn't like each other in the first place. So it just shows you how much Jesus was hated when the two parties got together. And, and you know, in parallel, it'd be like NDP and the conservatives and their political platforms, and then they can, and, they, and that's how they are, and, and they're, they're very verbally known against each other. And then all of a sudden, because of one certain leader, within, say, like our country or within our province, they can join together to form one party to get rid of this one leader. I mean, that gives you a... And it's even stronger than that. It's stronger than that because the, this, there's, there's, in the NDP and the and conservative, there aren't really, like, spiritual issues at stake. I mean, this is, for a Jew, this is a major, major declaration by who you side with. Um, but you could even see it within our context, it'd be unlikely. But, um, but these guys get together for... Um, 
as their, in their common goal to get rid of Jesus. I can, if you want to ever find out what the difference is between the, what their differences in beliefs are, I can share with that with you sometime, but uh, it's not important for today's message. So what's interesting about the Sanhedrin, though, is like the unbelieving Jews who had just come from Bethany, they did not deny the fact that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Did you see that? He said, they say there, what are we doing for this man is performing many signs. So they don't deny the resurrection, and they don't deny the other things he's done in the past. In Jerusalem, he raised a, he gave sight to a blind man, and in Jerusalem, he's already raised a paralytic to full health after 38 years. So they don't deny he's a miracle worker, and they don't deny anything that he's ever done. They, they actually see the evidence. They know about the evidence, but they choose to deliberately ignore the evidence before them. And the reason for this is clearly given to us in 48. It says, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So to understand their worry, we have to go back 2,000 years and think like a Jew. So let's think like a Jew to see what they mean by this. So the Jews for centuries are waiting for the Messiah to come. And part of the Messianic expectation is that he's going to take their, his rightful place as king, and he'd free and liberate the nation of Israel from the foreign oppressors. In this case, Rome's in power. So the Messiah's job is to come in as king, fulfill the Old Testament prophecies, and reestablish Israel's autonomy as a self-governing people. But as a, knowing this, they also believe that this wouldn't come without a fight. If you're going to free yourselves from Roman, from Roman rule, you're not gonna, it's not going to passively occur. There's going to have to be a battle. There's going to have to be war. So they expect war. But here's the problem. The Sanhedrin know that if they go in and fight against Rome, they're going to get absolutely obliterated. That's their belief. And they enjoy the power and status they have. Because Rome is an in, in ultimate authority, but they're allowing the Sanhedrin to rule as the, having influence and power within the nation. So any uprising that, that makes this rocky, that threatens their status quo and their influence, they don't want. And they're terrified of this and don't want the disaster that this, this fight would occur, would this, yeah, that this fight would uh, entail. Now the problem for the Sanhedrin is, the Jews within Israel have already come to believe Jesus is the Messiah. Right? Many have come to believe in him. And so he's already gaining influence. Secondly, the Passover is near. In chapter 12, we're going to see this. The Passover is coming. Tens of thousands of people are going to flock from around the Palestine to the nation. And there's going to be tens upon tens of thousands of people. If they hear about what Jesus has been doing, i.e. the resurrection, and then he performs miracles in their midst, more people are going to accept him as king. So the Sanhedrin sees this movement and this influence Jesus is having. And not only are they going to accept Jesus as king, therefore eliminate their ability to rule the people, they're going to accept Christ as king, which means they reject Rome or Caesar as king. To accept Christ as king is to reject Caesar as king. And if they do that, that means that they're, they're going to be over, overcome by Rome and they're going to lose all their power and influence. That's why they say, if we let them go on like this, the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. It has nothing to do with the people. It has nothing to do with what's morally right or wrong. It's all to do with their own status and what they have to lose as the religious authorities. So they knew something had to be done. And so Caiaphas in verse 50 gives a solution. 
actually 49 to 50. It says, one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. So Caiaphas' solution is this, kill Jesus, get rid of him. Not because, again, it's morally right, or because I know we care about what's best for the Israelite people, but it's best for us, right? Again, the key word there is for you. Uh, it's, he says, nor do you take into account that it's expedient for you that one man die for the nation. So again, it's all about us and what we have to lose. So his argument's cynical and self-serving, but... Um, you know, he, he doesn't care because he just wants to re- remain, remain in power and status. And he's afraid of Rome. So it's better to lose one life than to lose the entire nation. Because losing one life at least preserves their power and status because Rome won't, will leave them alone. So here's the irony though. While Caiaphas chose his words to consciously bring harm to Jesus, he actually unconsciously acted as a prophet of God. <laughs> Look at this in 51-52. Now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So Caiaphas was right that Jesus was going to die for the nation, but for the polar opposite reason than he expected. So according to John, Caiaphas had actually prophesied that Jesus' death was going to serve two purposes. One, bring salvation to those within Israel and bring salvation to those um, from without Israel. However, Caiaphas thought the salvation was going to be from the wrath of the Romans. But John lets us know that actually the, the, the salvation was going to be from the wrath of God. <laughs> right? Interesting twist and irony there. Again, this salvation was not from the wrath of the Romans, but from the salvation of, or from the wrath of God. And Caiaphas um, used sacrificial, substitutionary language in his declaration about what was going to happen. Basically, he didn't even know it, but he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the sins of the world, both Israel and from without. And through that death, that all would be given the right to be gathered into one flock uh, as one common people, as the people of God. So clearly Caiaphas had no idea that his cynical and self-serving speech that day was actually a proclamation of the gospel. I mean, he had no idea. But the Sanhedrin didn't realize it either, because we can see in their actions here in 53, from that day on, they decide to kill Jesus. So with it not being safe anymore, Jesus has to flee the vicinity of Jerusalem. And in 54, we learn that he was no longer to con- he no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now, depending on the commentaries you read, uh, uh, Ephraim is about 12 to 15 miles from Jerusalem. Okay, so that's like t- you know around 20 clicks or so. Uh, oh, 20 to 25 kilometers away. Um, again, that doesn't sound like lots in our context because we have a car. Some of you drove that far maybe to get to church. But remember, this is ancient times and they would have gone by foot or at best animal. So Jesus goes quite a distance from Jerusalem to get away from this threat of persecution. <coughs> and I think it's important to look at that. And we'll talk about this more in lessons, but 
think about this in terms of Jesus amongst the, threat, the threats that he's facing. He decides that it's okay to take safety precautions and, walk, and, and leave and flee persecution. You know, like there's sometimes within the church attitude maybe that, uh, well, if you're, a, if you're a really strong Christian and, and, you're, like a, you know, and you're not a big chicken, you'll, you'll stay in the midst of persecution and you'll like man up. Well, not like Jesus didn't. He thought, you know what, my life's uh, in danger and I know I'm going to eventually die, but it's too soon. And so he, he does the smart thing and just flees away from the persecution. And we'll talk about, again more about that later. But how long he stayed in Ephraim, we don't know. But if you and I were disciples back then, you would have known that your stay couldn't be permanent. You know it would only be a temporary fleeing, not a permanent fleeing. And you'd know this because of verse 55. The Passover was coming. Uh, the Passover of the Jews was near, and, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. It's important to remember that Je Jesus was Jewish. Why is that important? Because he had to obey the law like everybody else in Jerusalem. <laughs> Just because he's God doesn't mean he can't be free from obeying the law. The reason why you and I are saved is because he, faced, he had to obey, face all of God's uh, instruction for life and he had to obe be obedient to it. And because he was, when he died, he was perfect and sinless. So he had to face the same temptations as you and I to disobey and so forth. So Jesus, being Jewish, couldn't escape as a human obeying the law of God. So he had to go back and obey the Passover. And there was only three feasts that were required by, by law um, for the Jewish people to uh, um, obey, and Passover was one of them. Also, you had to go up one week early to ceremonially get ready for it. You had to purify yourself, or you were disqualified from participating in it. And so Jesus um, has to eventually go back for the Passover, and the disciples would have known that. And Jesus would have known that. So again, this fleeing from persecution was a, just a temporary thing for him. So with thousands and thousands gathered in Jerusalem with massive crowds there, the, a lot of these guys had a burning question in their mind. And we pick it up in 56 and 57. They were seeking for Jesus and they were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so they might seize him. So a question, of course, amongst these people was there, you know, with the Sanhedrin's public hatred for Jesus known and the, and the, and the threats upon, his, uh, uh, upon him, um, would he actually show his face? You know, they would have expected him to come as a Jew, but they wondered would that override his... Uh, this sort of like public hatred for him with this potential like execution facing him. What would he of course show his face? And of course we know, because we have the rest of the scriptures that he did, he did come back. But this is a significant event because from chapter 12 on, we now move in the book of John to the basically the last uh, few weeks of Jesus' life. And uh, from the rest of the, even though it's only halfway in the gospel, the rest from 12 to 21 basically only summarizes like I think about a two, two to three week period of Jesus' life. So it's 12 chapters in length, but it's, uh, it's a, only a couple weeks long. So we're going to get into that from chapter 12 to the rest of the book starting next week. Well, there are some lessons I do want us to take away from today. And uh, these are, there's three in particular. And the first one is this. Even though factual evidence, i.e. miracles, 
can often lead someone to faith in Jesus. It's not a guarantee. Right? Your prayer life for people, my prayer, and your prayer life for yourself, just like I've prayed those prayers to God, do something big so I can trust you again. <laughs> it doesn't guarantee that our faith's going to strengthen or, or the people we're praying for is even going to... Um, uh, people aren't going to surrender their lives to Christ necessarily through that. They could, but it's not a guarantee. I uh, quote you Leon Morris on this issue. He says, It's always been the case that those whose minds are made up to oppose what Christ stands for will not be convinced by any amount of evidence. Once the mind's made up, it's made up. I used to say this, A person can be convinced against their will is of the same opinion still. <laughs> okay? In this case, why? There's different reasons why. Um, in this case, contextually, the reason why people here won't believe is because they have too much to lose in this world. they got too much to lose. I've got power. I've got influence. i got status. I ain't sacrificing that for the sake of this so-called Jesus. I can see the evidence. I know the evidence, but... This life has too much to offer me now than what the future can hold for me. And again, that's a lot of times those definitions come because people don't understand what the future is going to be like. So this world is very attractive. But man, like we could speak for, for hours on the, the nature of, of, of um, religions this way. Think of any religious institution that exists and you threaten the leaders with the sake of for Jesus, receiving Jesus Christ Versus the power and status and influence they stand to lose within their church church leadership. It's not worth the risk for them. This can even happen in our own personal lives. We have a specific um, power or influence or status within our own work, our own families, or whatever it is. And we, are, we know the evidence. We actually want to believe, but we won't believe because we have too much to lose relationally in this lifetime, in this world. So that's one reason you can you know, disobey, or not disobey, um, disregard the evidence. A second issue would be emotional doubt. Emotional doubt. And John 3 speaks about this a lot. Basically, emotional doubt meaning I won't, re I won't believe because um, I know what's going to cost me. I know what's going to cost me. John 3 talks about this. He says, um, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds are evil. For everyone who come, does, not, does evil hates the light and does not come to light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. So I emotionally won't commit to the Lord because if I do, my life's going to have to change. I know that God has a standard for my life, but I don't want to lose that. I want to keep going with the way life is despite the evidence. I don't want to be changed. True story in my gym, about six months ago, Stuart was there, he was training a client and I got my nose in the middle of their session. <laughs> That's why I have a big nose, it helps me poke my way in there. I'm like Pinocchio, except I don't lie to you. <laughs> but uh, um, this is natural, yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'll have to pray for my voice. <laughs> um, but anyway, back to reality. Uh, the, um, that's not in my notes, Kevin, either. <laughs> but uh, I'm in the gym, and there's a woman there, and she's talking. Her husband's a, a political guru, an economic guru, and she's talking about the sort of like the world situations, and and uh, 
talking about this sort of potential for this one world order kind of thing. And so I get my nose in there and I say, yeah, actually, you know, uh, the book of Daniel speaks about this. And I talked about the four kingdoms that have come from the book of Daniel, like Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, and how they were all predicted to come and how they've all fallen. And then I talked about Rome is going to be reestablished in the fifth kingdom, which is going to be the Antichrist and how he's going to come now. And I said, it's funny that evidentially, even if someone doesn't believe the Bible to be true, it's funny that in that area predicting the kingdoms of the world, it all came true. And archaeologically and historically, we can all prove that those four kingdoms existed and no one denies it. We know the names of the leaders, like Alexander the Great for Greece, for example. No one denies it. Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, his imprints are on the old temple in, the, in Iraq. Like, you can find the foundation stones with his name imprinted on them. You know, like, the, these, these people existed. And I said, there's a fifth kingdom come, coming, and I got into sort of like the spiritual implications of it all, and she says to me, well, I don't believe that. <laughs> I don't believe you. Okay, so wait a bit straight. Evidentially speaking, I told you that the scriptures speak about this. It's historically proven by secular people, and you won't believe there's a fifth kingdom coming. I mean, I don't know why she doubted, but I'd say this. She either had something in status, power, influence to lose, or she was fearful, fearful of Jesus because if her life was exposed, she would have to change. So it's true to this day, too. Second lesson, smaller lesson, but it's worth mentioning. In the midst of persecution, it's okay for believers to flee to safety. <laughs> you know, uh, Jesus went 12 to 15 miles away. In the book of Acts, when Paul came against the church, the people fled. They fled. They ran away. They were trying to preserve their lives. Um, again, it's a simple lesson, but it protects against the Christian attitude, well, God will protect me. Like this idea, well, I'll stay because God's going to protect me. Well, again, he could. He could protect you, but it doesn't mean that you should just stick around in hopes that he will. It's still okay if in the midst of persecution to flee. You're not being chicken. You're just being smart. Okay? So, anyway. I have to protect me on my way home. <laughs> yeah, totally. That ice is, that persecution on the road, say. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, the third lesson, and probably the most important one, though, is in order to have eternal life, our faith has to be placed in Jesus Christ. In verse 45, it says that they believed in Him. They believed in Him. Again, in our culture, uh, you know, it's easy to believe that within our church context here, but this is not something that's readily accepted within Okotoks or, or within, well, anywhere for that matter. But to be in him, we have to understand what Caiaphas didn't know he was speaking about. We have to understand the substitutionary nature of Jesus Christ's death. He says here he died for He's going to have to die for the people, to die for the nation. He's going to die for, and, and, the, and in Jesus again, he died for us, you know, so that we could become the children of God. So the way to receive that, that, that uh, substitutionary forgiveness, that, that death, is through confession and repentance, right? We confess the sins that we know that put them on the cross, and then we repent of that. In other words, we're willing to go God's way, evidenced by the way we live in according to his commands. So we obey him. Obedience is always the marker of love for, for Christ. And I wanted to show you some things uh, PowerPoint-wise because uh, this is a really, really interesting thing. If I were to ask you, 
What do you think in the New Testament is the number one definition of a Christian? Like, what does the New Testament actually say about, how do we de define a Christian? Do you think it's the word uh, believer? Do you think it's the word follower? Do you think it's the word saint? Do you think it's the word disciple? It's actually in him, or in Christ, or in the Lord. That's the number one way of defining a Christian. And my mom gave me a sermon series by uh, uh, Simon Manchester in the book of Deuteronomy. And I learned this from him. He said, it's the number one definition of how you define a Christian is to be in Jesus, to be in him. And I'll just show you three. And I counted 40. I stopped at 40 after looking this up for myself. 40 in him or in Christ. I'm like, okay, I'm done. Like, I, I get it. I get the point. Okay. I'll give you three. Okay. Ephesians 1.4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. John, 1 John 4.13 By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And Romans 8.1 Therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The number one definition of a Christian is in him, in him, in Christ, in the Lord, over and over. Our identity as people is in Jesus Christ. Verse 45 Many people that day began to believe in him. And Jesus says later, I am the truth and the life. Whoever believes in me will live, even if he dies. You know, it goes on and on and on. It's an interesting thing. That, that phrase matters more than disciple, believer, follower. But that's the gospel.